When we boil it all down, you take everything, uh, everything you've ever, ever heard taught, that's true, about God, about His Word, about the Christian life, if we boil it all down, what is God looking for in the lives of His children? Or maybe, what is God working toward in the life of His children? And maybe beyond, beyond that, what is, what is at the heart of the Christian life? Because where the text takes us today is going to deal directly with, with really that. What is it that God's up to and what is the core? What is the heart of the Christian life? And as we do this, let me just say, I mentioned this Wednesday, I don't know of another passage that is potentially more piercing and pointed uh, towards especially those of us who have been in healthy churches for a long time, to those of us who are, who are part of American or Western Christianity. I, I think it's pointed. And having said that, let me just say, I do not know each and every individual heart in the room, where you're at, what you're going through. I'm going to bring the Lord's Word by His grace, and what I ask is that all of us, just in humility, allow the Lord to use this passage to examine our lives, and whatever the Spirit stirs, that's what I... I'm asking you to respond to today. That's what God's asking you to respond to today. But don't, there's no attempt to guilt or, or to make something. And you'll see what I mean here in a moment as we come to the text. So if you will, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And you'll remember at Revelation 1, we set up this stage. John the Apostle, he's, he's in his late 80s, early 90s on the island of Patmos where he is exiled as a punishment for his faithful witness to Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And there on that island, he, he hears a voice, loud, mighty, like a trumpet. And he turns around and he sees this vision of Jesus Christ. And he sees Jesus in all his glory. And you'll remember the description from last week, one clothed in the glory and royalty of a, of a priest and a king, one, one whose head and hair were white like wool, who, who has all wisdom, who is pure, who is eternal, whose eyes like a flame of fire see all things, feet like burnished bronze, strong, planted, firm, immovable, voice like the sound of many waters, divine, God, powerful, clear. In his hand he held the seven stars out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword which pierces bone and marrow, soul and spirit. His face shone like glory. And when John sees Jesus exalted, he falls at his feet as like a dead man before the glory of the Almighty God. But John, as one who's been saved by the blood of Christ, experiences the warmth as Jesus in all His glory bends down and touches Him on the shoulder with the hand of favor and power. And Jesus then charges him. He says, I want you to write. Write down the revelation, what has been. Write down what I'm going to say to the churches. Write down what will be the prophecy in this book. And he says, for the mystery of the seven stars in my right hand and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so all of a sudden after this introduction, we now pick up with the first of the seven letters. The seven letters are seven churches John's commanded to write to. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now we're going to pause there for a second. What do you mean by, by angel? There's discussion there. Is he talking about a literal angel, a supernatural being that's been assigned to, to each and individual church who, 
who bears some level of responsibility in there. It's possible. It'd be the most natural use of the word angel. At the same time, the Greek word angelos, the literal meaning is not a supernatural being that created by God. The literal meaning is just a messenger, a messenger. So it's possible, and, and this is what I tend to think based on the use here, that he is writing to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. Well, who would the messenger most likely be? Who would be the one reading the letter? Be the pastor. It'd be the pastor. So to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, it's important you and I understand a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Uh, you might be familiar with the name. We have a New Testament book called Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, but the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, somewhere towards the end of the first century, you've got 100 to 250,000 people it is the chief provincial capital of the proconsular of Asia Minor, meaning what's modern-day Turkey. By the end of the first century, it is easily the second most populated and powerful and important city in all of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome itself. When you entered into the city, you would find a beautiful city built on a harbor. It was an economic boomtown with a highway coming in and out. And, and if you were to sail into that harbor at the core uh, there, you'd notice some things. You'd see in the, in the back of the city as it heads up to the cliffs, you'd see a 24,000-seat amphitheater. In addition, the Library of Celsus, one of the three greatest libraries of the ancient world, was there in Ephesus. Not only that, but several weeks ago we mentioned how in this, these churches are facing a time where Emperor Domitian, in order to stir up political unity in the empire, he will send a caravan that will go, enter into cities, and you've got to come through as a citizen and you've got to go into this caravan and you've got to see this image of the emperor, take a little incense, declare Caesar is Lord, and, and walk out. And, and no one really believed that Caesar was divine, but, but this emperor worship became a right a right, a political right. And obviously for the first century believers, they can, we can declare no one is Lord other than Jesus. And so they said, no, well in Ephesus, they're not dealing with occasional caravans. They have the temple of Domitian in Ephesus where this takes place all the time. But more than even any of that, as you came into the harbor and looked at the city, what would strike you is off to the left, about a mile outside of the city, was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The Temple of Artemis in the Greek, or the Temple of Diana if you're going from Roman titles. In, in this 425 by 220 foot temple was, was the seat and locus of the, the worship of Artemis a religious devotion of the Ephesians that was more prevalent there than anywhere else in the ancient world. The idol worship of Artemis, we know from Scripture, drove the economy of the city. It was a primary means of this economic powerhouse. Not only that, but like any ancient uh, pagan worship, it involved temple prostitution and mutilation. And in addition to that, the temple functioned as an official asylum for lawbreakers who didn't want to be punished under law. It, it, it is a kind, uh, in, in its day, a kind of sanctuary temple, sanctuary city for those who broke Roman law. 
So when you and I think about the city of Ephesus, here is a large, economically powerful, religiously uh, passionate and pagan, second most prominent city in the whole empire. This is the city of Ephesus. In some time, about four decades prior to John writing this, the Apostle Paul came walking into Ephesus where he would spend the next three years of his life. Some people came to faith in Christ. He would stay there, continue to disciple them, and a church was born. And over time, Paul would have, we see different interactions. He'd spend three years there in his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, as he made his way back to Jerusalem where he knew he would be arrested, Acts tells of the, in Acts chapter 20, tells of the Ephesian pastors, the Ephesian elders, they come together with Paul and, and Paul charges them. He says, listen, you need to understand when I'm gone, there are going to be wolves that come in. There are going to be wolves that disguise themselves, that come into the life of the church, that are going to seek to destroy the church. And he charges them based on the, the, the work of Christ in their life, the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are to give their lives to protect the church. As time would go on, tradition tells us that Paul's spiritual son, Timothy, would be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Not only that, but John the Apostle, who writes the book of Revelation, it said that he pastored the church of Ephesus. This is a church that has a pastoral legacy unparalleled. Can you imagine if that's your, your church record? Tell us about your pastors. Well, Paul founded us, Timothy pastored us, and then John pastored us. Pretty good. Here's this church. Here's these two realities. A pagan, powerful city, a church with a legacy, a church that was charged. Well, how is the church done? Well, let's look and see. To the angel, to the church in Ephesus, write, the one who is holding the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now remember that imagery. Here's what he's saying. The glorious Jesus of chapter one, who holds the leadership of the church in his hand, who has all authority and might, the, the glorious Jesus from chapter one, who walks among, who dwells amongst his people, who tends the lampstands, his churches which are to shine light into the darkness, the one who trims the wicks, who, who fills them with oil, who makes sure they are burning. This one says, let me put it this way, Jesus who has all authority and might, who walks among his churches, is speaking. And by the way, when it says, says in your Bible there, it's present tense, meaning he's still saying it. We may not be the Ephesian church, but we can certainly be spoken to by what was said to the Ephesian church, and Jesus' word stands true today. He's still saying this, so on our end, here's what we must do, pay attention because Jesus is talking. And here's what he says. He says, I know your deed. I know your deeds and toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You find them to be false. Literally, you find them to be liars. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And then drop down to verse 6. This you also are doing. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Listen to what he says, church family. God, Jesus says, church in Ephesus, with my eyes of flaming fire, I know, I see, I am well aware. I am well aware you're a serving church. 
says, I know your deeds. This was a church active and engaged in ministry, doing evangelism, discipling the saved. This was a church that was active in serving. He says, I see your sacrifice. This was a church that says, I see your toil. That word toil is to labor to the point of exhaustion. It says, I don't just see you actively doing the things of ministry. I, I see the sacrifice you put into it. I see the way you give and give. I, I see you're your giving to the point of exhaustion. He says, I see that you're a steadfast and persevering church, never giving up in spite of opposition. It says, I, I see your perseverance or your steadfastness. It's a, a common word in the, the New Testament for the life of a believer. It means the power to withstand hardship, to bear up under stress. It speaks of an inward fortitude in which one actively and personally stands one's ground. It is not simply a passive consignment to let the storm pass, but an active resistance. It says, I see it. Not only that, but I see you're a separated church in, in the sense of you, you sift out false doctrine and false living. It says you cannot, you won't put up, and there's an interesting wordplay, you won't bear, you won't tolerate, you won't endure evil men. Those who come walking into town claiming to be messengers of God, who undoubtedly would walk into town and, and make some kind of statement that says, oh, hey, Listen, that whole deal about Jesus is Lord, you're 100% right, he's Lord, but that's a spirit thing. You don't have to worry about going in there to the temple of Domitian and dropping your incense and saying Domitian is Lord. That's just a physical thing, don't worry about that. God's okay with that. All, the, all that immorality that's seducing and tempting your young people because of the temple of Artemis, you don't need to worry about that. It's okay, here's how that fits with, with Jesus's love. Do you realize how easy it would have been for them to go, oh, wait a minute, you're telling me the hardship that I am having, you're telling me the, the, the economic repression that I am dealing with as a business owner because I won't go up to the Artemis' temple and Domitian's temple, you're telling me I can get out of that and have Jesus too? It's what likely the Nicolaitans were saying and encouraging and living. And rather than the Ephesian church going, wow, I can have Jesus and ease of life and do all these other things, they said, wait a minute. Those of you saying that, yeah, you're not apostles of God, you're just straight up liars. We put that to the test against God's word just like Paul charged us to 30 years ago and we're not, we're not playing with any of it, get out of here. It says when, when they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, now notice, it doesn't say they hate the Nicolaitans, says they hate their deeds. And by hate, there is a, a, a stance of opposition, a feeling of aversion, whatever it was, the Nicolaitans, and we'll see them again, so I'm not gonna spend time unpacking them today, but whatever it was the Nicolaitans were, were pushing, it was opposed to Christ, and the Ephesians opposed it too. Here is a church that stood apart, that sifted out false doctrine in false living, even at the cost of continual suffering. Jesus sees their suffering, church. He says, I, I see you've endured. You've, you don't endure evil men, but you do endure. You do bear up hardship. You do experience unpleasantness is what that word means. For my name's sake, you suffer for me. And I see it. It's apparent. Church, do, family, do you realize the description Jesus describes of the Ephesian church? Here is a church that's sound in doctrine. 
that sound in morality, even when others around them are compromising. They're living in a hotbed of idolatry and sinfulness, yet they refuse to give in, even though it would be easy to. They would walk in accordance to the word. They allowed scripture, not culture, to guide their lives. Holiness and purity mattered, and the result would have been, as one author wrote, they would find themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, abused. They would be objects of physical violence, social ostracism, and economic repression, yet they endured for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. For years as a student pastor and then a college pastor, I would naturally have, have, have people I was ministering to come to me saying, I'm going to school in such and such town, or I got a job in such and such a place. Can you help me find a good church? Man, this is the church. You, you, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm taking a job in Ephesus. You got any good churches? Yes, I do. And if we stopped there, we would expect the rest of the sermon to be, well, how do we become a church like this? But that's not where Jesus stops. Listen what Jesus says. I see all of this. I see a church I see a church seeking to walk in holiness and purity. I see a church enduring. I see a church standing for truth. I see a church unapologetic. But this, verse four, but this I have against you. This is continually before me. There is something in your lives that I am opposed to that is offensive to me as Lord. And it's continually there, present tense, meaning you can't just allow enough time to pass and it change. Time's not gonna make it any better. You're gonna have to take action. Here's what he says, this I have against you. You have left your first love. Wait a minute. You're telling me by every metric we would look at what is a healthy church we would say this is the greatest church we've ever seen. We should aspire to be the church in Ephesus. And Jesus just said, you are doing all the right things, but somewhere along the way, you didn't lose it. That's not the word. The word is something you intentionally leave behind. Somewhere along the way, you ignored the warning signs. Somewhere along the way, you ignored the Spirit's conviction. Somewhere along the way, your first-hearted love for me, you abandoned it. Therefore, he gives three commands. Remember from where you have fallen. Go back, remember that place where the first love was bright. Go back, remember that place where you first understood the greatness of God's love for you, not that you deserved it or earned it because you don't and you never will, but simply because he is good. Go back to that place where you did not think your works added up to something with God, but you just accepted the fact that he is who he is and he acts towards you in grace and mercy. Go back to that place of first-hearted devotion and love. Remember. Go back, and that remembering is present tense, meaning don't just do it once, but continually keep it in the forefront of your mind. Remember, repent, and repent. Wait a minute. You're telling me Jesus is telling this church that by every standard we would say is amazing? He's not just saying, hey, remember and improve this. He's saying, you are living in sin. 
You are living and walking with me in a way that is inappropriate, that is wrong, and I am calling you to turn from the way you're walking, acknowledge I'm right, you're wrong, and walk in restored fellowship and love with me. And do, which tells us when he said you've left your first love, he's not just looking for some kind of new return to a level of emotionality. He wants them out of a true and genuine love to then act, to act, do the deeds you did at first. Act out of that first-hearted love. He says, or else, this is what's happening. I'm coming, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Realize the weight of that. What does the lampstand signify? It signifies a church being Jesus' church. So for Jesus to come and remove the lampstand means if you don't repent, you are no longer my church. You're telling me it is possible as a church and as an individual to check the boxes of sound theology, to be engaged and active in correct ministry, to refuse to back down to truth, yet not love Jesus at all. Yes. And Jesus takes We're going to see some of these other churches deal with sexual immorality, false doctrine, stuff that we would typically look at and go, no, we've got to stand firm. Jesus will call out churches in the coming weeks for those things, yet none of these churches get as harsh a rebuke as the church in Ephesus for losing their first, not losing, for abandoning their first love. You see, church family, here's the reality. When you and I go cover to cover from Scripture, it is very clear what God is up to in the life of His people. God wants, what God is up to in our lives is not simply behavior modification. That's not what it is. God is up to a complete and total restoration and transformation of who we are, such that it penetrates all the way down to the core of our being and changes the entirety of our affection. In fact, you can go back to the beginning and make a case that at the heart of the first sin, at the heart of the first sin of Adam and Eve was self-love. Says that in the life of God's people, Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for good to those who are uh, called to the glory of God, and he's, and he's working us out, Romans 8, 29, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Well, what is Jesus like? Jesus is the Son who has eternally been loved by the Father and eternally loved the Father. So guess what it looks like to be made into the image of Jesus? It looks like people who with the entirety of our being, the first of our love is all for God. That's what it means to be transformed. Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment when asked? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with the entirety of your being. Well, well where does that come from? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy 6, when the second generation of Israel is getting ready to go into the promised land, and Moses is charging them. And in those first three verses, he says, this is my paraphrase, Israel, if you want to walk well with God, you pay attention to what I'm about to tell you, and you make sure you do it and don't ever depart. And then he says this, hear, O Israel, command here, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, a theological truth. And then here's the command off of this truth. Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words should not depart from your mouth. Bind them on your doorposts. Talk about them with your sons and daughters. What? Talk about the fact that our God is the one true God and we love Him. God is up to making people who have, you go to a book like Hosea, where God is dealing with the infidelity and the immorality of his people. And I was reading there in my own time in the Lord recently, and, and, I, and I, I was struck by the fact that God says once he breaks Israel of her pride, once he takes her out and brings her to a place of rock bottom, he says, I will woo her with words. And then it says this, and then in that day, you will no longer call me Bailey, but Ish. That's how it's written in, in Hebrew and what it's translated as, but if you look at it, and there's a word play. You're worshiping Baal and you'll no longer call me, but if you look at the word play, he says, in that day you won't call me master, you'll call me husband. What is God at work? He's at work breaking his people not to call him a title of servitude, even though certainly we are servants of the Most High God, but what he's up to is to, to bring them to a place where they relate to God on the basis of love. Now understand, we only love First John because he first loved us. Any action we have, any love we have for God is a response to the one who, according to Revelation 1, who loves us and released us from our sin by the power of his blood. We love because he first loved us, and this is love. Not that we loved God, we were in rebellion according to Ephesians 2, but it says not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. Understand, church family, what God is up to in our lives is, is, is to transform us where we firstly and foremost, we, we are lovers of Jesus. We're out of love for Jesus, everything else flows. So what does it mean? to have first love for Jesus. Well, we know it's a response to His love. We know that love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God in our life, which means we choose to, by faith, believe His word and walk in submission. The, the Spirit produces love. We know that love, Jesus said to His disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, heed my word. To love Jesus means we, we accept who He is at His word which means if we look in our lives and we go, man, I don't really like that Jesus is opposed to sin. I don't really like that people who don't know Jesus have to give account for their sin and go to hell. I don't really like, if there's things you don't like about Jesus, but then you say, but I love Jesus. No, to love Jesus means we embrace all his word. His word is a reflection of himself. It means we love his word, but we don't, we don't obey and value and, and believe his word out of fear but out of love. We don't do it because we're terrified. We do it because the affections of our being desire Him. Now maybe put it a different way. Listen to, listen to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage we always read at a wedding, though its context has to do with the love that's in a, in a local church, but it, but it also applies to the way we love Jesus. The first few verses, Paul says things. If I speak with tongues of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong. If I have the gift of prophecy and mysteries and knowledge, but I don't, and I have faith to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. He says, you can, you can be the greatest Christian ever, but if it's not love at the core driving, you're, you're, you're worthless. Then he says this, love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked. 
It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now think about this. Is it possible for me to believe what's true about Jesus? To actively teach Sunday school and serve in Awanas and, and do this and that, to go on mission trips? And for me to be a braggart and arrogant? Yes. I'm arrogant every time I talk about how great God is and I refuse to acknowledge his authority in some area of my life that I'm full aware of. I'm in denial of his word and will. It does not act unbecomingly. Is it possible to, to be theologically sound and into from all the, the big externals have a fairly pure looking life and yet joke coarsely? Is it possible to, to do that and to tell little white lies and twist the truth so no one dislikes me and I get my way? Is it possible to be manipulative? Yes, to act unbecomingly. Is it possible to rejoice in un unrighteousness? De depends on what category we're looking at. Here's, here's what I simply say, church family. What does it mean to have first love for Jesus? It means we actually love him in the way that he describes love. And why is this so serious? Church family, understand, we can be driven. We can look correct, but be driven by the wrong motivation. We can be driven by legalism. Now let me get clear here. Jesus doesn't accuse the Ephesians of legalism. Legalism is one of two things, and we, we get this wrong. It's one of two things. It's either when we think doing the right thing gets me approval with God, you can't get approval with God. The only way to be approved by God is to be in Christ, in which case Jesus has already gotten full approval. There's nothing more you can do to get more approval. Or legalism is when we say God says something as a rule that his word he doesn't actually say. God says it's a sin to drink Pepsi. No, <laughs> Pepsi's not in the Bible. Legalism is not holiness and purity. Holiness and purity is right. It's expected. It's good. But we can be driven by legalism. We can be, by true legalism, we can be driven by duty. This is what God expects of me. I, I better get up. I better check the box. I've had my quiet time. I've had my prayer time. I've done this. Duty, 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 duty. Is there, is there any affection for Jesus? We can be driven by fear. Fear is a powerful, I listened to a, a, a thing this week where it's a very famous Hollywood actor who's, who's um, talking about his faith and, and he talked about fear is the most powerful motivator. Have you ever heard of Jerry Rice? He's considered the greatest wide receiver in NFL history. I watched an interview with him one time and he talked all about how the driving force, what drove him to do these workouts in the off season, what drove him to go harder than anybody else was fear. Fear of losing, fear of failing his teammates, fear. Listen, we can be driven by fear. We better not turn, we better not fear, we better not step out of line. Fear, 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 fear. Yet, yet Jesus says perfect love casts out fear. We as a church aren't to be driven by fear. Our correct doctrine, our correct lives shouldn't be driven by fear but by love. Why is it so serious? Colossians 3 says love is the bond of unity. Which means if we're driven by duty, if we're driven by fear, if we're driven by legalism, we won't be unified. It's love for Jesus. 
that you will find strength to overcome temptation and despair. Higher affection will always defeat lower affection. It is serious because we will not survive as a church if we do not love Him firstly. So how do we know if we've lost our first love? Well, we've lost our first love when we live on yesterday's love. Maybe put it a different way, when we live on legacy. Ah, oh, we're the church in Ephesus. We love Jesus. Paul was our pastor. Timothy was our pastor. John was our pastor. That's great for yesterday, but it's not yesterday, it's today. That's great that yesterday you had a, a warmth and affection for Jesus, hence why Jesus says, remember when you had a first love. Yesterday's love doesn't equal today. Yesterday's obedience doesn't equal today. We can do it when we live on yesterday. I can do it when I go, well, I love Jesus. My great-great-grandfather was a pastor. He loves Jesus. My great-grandfather's a pastor. He loves Jesus. My grandfather's a pastor. He loves Jesus. My, my dad's a pastor. He loves Jesus. I love Jesus. Listen, my dad does love Jesus. My grandfather does love Jesus. Doesn't mean that I love Jesus. I don't get to live on legacy. We don't get to live on legacy. Maybe yesterday as a church family, we love Jesus richly and deeply, and it proved, but it doesn't mean we are today. Maybe yesterday you love Jesus, but today, we have to deal with Jesus today. We do it when we live legalistically, believing that doing the right things gets us standing with God. We do it when we commit to doing the right things, but fail to acknowledge our own inward pride. Listen, there is nobody more at danger of this passage than me as a pastor. Every waking moment of my day is pretty well consumed with something dealing with Jesus in His Word. And I can sit there and, well, of course I love Jesus. I preach sound doctrine. I preach His Word verse by verse. I, I go over here. I've got this checklist here. I can go through and check all the boxes. And here's the reality. I could be from outward appearances the greatest, most sound, most encouraging pastor ever and not love Jesus firstly. We do it when we do all the right things, but we fail to acknowledge the own inward pride, our idolatry of lesser things. We can do it individually. Let me use an example. We've had times and places where we've said, if you want to have children that love the Lord, you just make sure that everywhere in the car you're listening to Steve Green or Adventures in Odyssey. TV is only right now media and VeggieTales. You just make sure, and we go down this list, check, 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 check. Do you know mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, do you know the thing that kids need to see according to Deuteronomy to pass down the faith? They need to see you love Jesus firstly. We can do it corporately. When we love our ways, our styles, and our traditions, we all have it. But if we were to probably go down and write down the things about church that we really love, that we treasure, oh, we love Sunday school. For some in this room, we love RAs and GAs. For some in this room, we love Awanas. We love church bands. We love choirs and orchestras. We love, do you realize none of those things existed for the first 1900 years of church history? Yet whenever there's conversation about what Jesus might want to move and stir and do or, or, or how dare we think and sense his leading might cause us to try something different to reach out into the world, all of a sudden we go up in arms. That's a sign we've, lost, we, we've, we've left behind some aspect of love for Jesus. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy those things and have fond memories of those things. And I'm not even hinting we're doing something different than those things. My simple point is we can do it corporately. 
When we refuse to follow Jesus where he leads us, when we value ways and styles and traditions, we can do it when we believe we're a better church than the one down the street who's capitulating to culture. We should never believe we're better than. We should just be brokenhearted for churches that fall and pray for restoration. We can do it when we don't love each other. The truth is we're not told exactly how it manifested in Ephesus. There's debates. Maybe they didn't love evangelism. Maybe they didn't love each other. Look, if we love Jesus firstly, we are going to love each other. We're going to treat each other with respect. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to believe the best about each other, not assume the worst about each other. We're going to bear with one another. We're going to be patient with one another. We're going to be gracious with one another. We're going to encourage one another. But when those things die down in a church and we become, we believe the worst, we get rude, we get snide, we don't respect leadership, we we don't respect each other, I guarantee you at the root somewhere we've abandoned our first love of Jesus. So you say, well, what do we do, pastor? Well, Jesus tells us what we do. He He says, how do we restore first love? He says, remember, you and I should actively daily be meditating and remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. Because we don't love except that he first loved us. We should be going back and remembering and stirring and taking our mind on a daily basis and thinking about everything we looked at the last two weeks. Just to give you a simple practice. He's glorious, he's worthy, he's mighty, he's immovable, he's holy, he's righteous. In, In his love he gave him, we remember who he is and what he's done. We remember the fact that he's called us to love him. And we make a choice and go, Lord, today, I don't really feel a whole lot of love. Today, it seems like, so Lord, help me. Oh, he delights as our great high priest for us to run to his throne with boldness and confidence to find grace and mercy in time of need, even when that need is, Lord, help me. My love is weak. We remember when we've had seasons in our life where we've walked with him with a first-hearted love. We repent Listen, if we've fallen out of love with Jesus, we need to understand today, church family, it is sinful. And time won't correct it. We need to apologize and confess it to Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? Peter denied Jesus three times. And there in John chapter 20 or 21, when he's got Peter on the beach, and he's, he's dealing with Peter's sin, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, Peter, who am I? Peter, what did I do on the cross? He didn't ask him doctrinal questions. He didn't say, Peter, how serious are you about following me? He asked him one question three times. Peter, do you love me? And Peter had to repent and deal with the fact that the weakness in his life was a warped self-love and not a love of Christ. Church family, all of us, if we are not careful, are all more prideful than we ever want to admit. And we are all far more heinously guilty of abandoning love than we ever want to really realize. We repent, and we do. We act. We then go, you know what, I'm going to get in the Word today, not because I have to check a box off, not because I've got to get God's approval. I don't need to check a box off. I've already got God's approval. I'm going to get into the Word today out of the joy of just getting to read the Word of my Lord. And I'm going to make a different choice in my mind on how I view it. When I, I don't, <laughs> the words of my grandfather, I don't, I don't have to go to church today. I get to go to church today and fellowship with my church family God's blessed me to have. We can go on and on and on down the line. We have to make action to do out of love. 
And when we do out of love, I've got news. There's, there's not a contrast between love and integrity, right? If we love him, we will be doctrinally sound. If we love him, we will live morally pure. If we love him, we will serve, we will sacrifice, we will endure. If we love him, all of those things will be true. And they'll be true for the right reasons. Here's the reality, church family. The call to love him is a hard call. But look what he says. The very end here as we come to the end. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Present tense, meaning if you've got an ear, if you want to hear Jesus today, let's pay attention because he's still speaking. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, pay attention. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the, par the, the paradise of God. To he who overcomes, to he who is victorious, to he who, who vanquishes the foe. And I've got great news. We'll expand on it more in weeks to come. We're told who overcomes. Revelation 12. And they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. If you're in Christ covered in the blood of Jesus, you're going to overcome. And there's a call to overcome. Jesus wants us to overcome. There is a call. Hey, pay attention. Overcome, overcome the danger of abandoning your love. Overcome and love me firstly. And that tree of life, which was once in the garden, that our self-love sinned and got us banished and kicked out from, is the very tree of life that to those who are overcome, Jesus gives the right for eternity to eat of. He's, he's using a word picture for eternal reward, and it would have been a picture that, that stood out to the Ephesians. Because you see, at that temple of Artemis, there was a garden that word paradise is a Persian word brought into Greek that means a garden. And at the temple of Artemis, there was a garden. And in that garden, excavations have shown that there was a tree in the middle of that garden. And that garden was likely the most sacred space in the entire temple. And that's where those who needed salvation, those who were seeking asylum, they ran into the safety of the walls of that garden and sought salvation at the tree of life a tree that would die and disappoint them all and lies in ruins today. The Ephesians would have understood the analogy, church family. God has laid in front of us the tree of life, the fruit of whose salvation never disappoints, the fruit of whose salvation in our life transforms us not to be lovers of self but lovers of God. By the way, that, that word for tree, the tree of life, it's not the normal Greek word for tree. It's the Greek word for wood, likely intending to paint a picture. What is our tree of life, church family? The wood of the cross, where the blood of our Lord was shed, the very blood that by his blood and the word of our testimony that the power of blood is brought into our life, we overcome. May we overcome as lovers of him. Let's pray. Jesus. You're worthy of our love. And all of us in this room, we love all sorts of things. May we be found to be lovers of you first and foremost. May we be found to give of our good, to give of our best, to give ourselves away for your glory. Just, Lord, as your love has driven you to give yourself on the cross for our salvation. Lord, we're not loving you to try to repay you. We can't ever repay you. We're just loving in response to who you are, to what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, there will come a day when the whole of our life will be set 
Father, may we not walk up on that day of judgment because we've had good doctrine and relatively sound morals and we've seemingly endured, but we've done it all for prideful reasons. We've done it all so people would value the greatness of our ministry. May we not come to a day where we're expecting to see gold, silver, and precious jewels on your altar and discover it all to be wood, hay, and straw. But Lord, may we live our lives out of love for you because you first loved us. And Jesus, if there are any in this room or watching online who have never known your love because they have never come to salvation, then Lord, may they not hold back, but may they respond to you today. It's to you we look, Jesus, and in your name I pray.